everyone and welcome to The Hoon. I am Bernard Hickey and with us in the kaka is host Peter Vale from Wellington. Oh, hey, Peter. Hello. I'm in, I'm in uh, Te Whanganui Atara, T-W-A-T. Ah, yes. Yeah. yes, yes. Um, where I've just landed, just arrived. And of course, I'm doing this from um, Oriental Bay, which it, it seemed, it's a very pretty spot. Who knew? <laughs> you knew, Yeah. Um, too late for me. Uh, I have, will never forgive Wellington after the winter of 2022. Mm -hmm. I am going to be moving to Auckland in Is March. that possibly and a little unreasonable, Bernard? Absolutely unreasonable and completely irrational, but um, I've had enough of the weather. So <laughs> we'll be moving yeah. to the wonderful Auckland um, in March. And doing what we can do here, uh, slightly remotely. Well, and, I can, um, I can maybe, maybe if yeah, I can move down to Mangaweka then, so that we can still keep the whole thing <laughs> turning over. You know, I think so, I'd have so a we can of... still reflect back regional New Zealand into that's the, right. Into the that's home. right. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. As long as we're on state highway, because I, I, when I lived in uh, Masterton a long, long time ago, um, I bought an enormous motorcycle in order to get home to Auckland. Um, many weekends in the year because I thought it was going to be hell living in Masterton, which of course was ridiculous, but I did work out a way of getting to getting to Auckland extremely quickly. What but time I think did it was, motorcycle? I visited Fielding today. I think the last time I visited Fielding was when I fell off my motorcycle nearby and oh. uh, had to go and spend a night in the hotel. Oh my goodness. So what type of motorcycle? It was an enormous Honda, but 900 cc's, but oh. this is you know, a very, very long time ago. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm glad you're still alive and with us. It's fantastic. Yes, me to, too. Me too. To, to see you in a nice, quiet place. And yes, Oriental Parade on a good day can be very good, but mm. I, I, I haven't forgiven it. Um, we are going to be joined uh, shortly by Bromwyn Haywood, who is um, the head of the uh, uh, um, political department at University of Canterbury and an expert on climate change. She helped write the IPCC report. Uh, into climate change. And this week's a big week because we're going to have the COP27 conference in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Um, and, and we're going to hear about what is being done or not being done uh, to try to slow climate change. Peter, um, I've never been to Sharm el-Sheikh. I haven't been to Sharm el-Sheikh either, but uh, I have been to Egypt quite a to certainly to Cairo. No, I haven't been to Sharm el-Sheikh, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great tourist destination. Um, and, you know, famous for its, for its diving. And it's also where, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of extremely important kind of uh, Arab Israeli, Egyptian Israeli conferences have been held over the years. It's a very, you know, it's an interesting place. I, the, the security there is going to be fairly extraordinary for this event, I would have thought. Um, and amusingly, amusingly the on the sidelines of this, Biden is going, but so is um, Boris Johnson, who is no longer the British Prime Minister, you may have noticed, and he's going as a paid guest of the of the Egyptian government, which has oh wound up Rishi Sunak so much that Rishi's decided to go now as well. What so there'll be a few story. good sort of sideline stories of this thing as well. Yeah, because originally when uh, um, all the details were being set, uh, um, Liz Truss was the Prime Minister, and she's definitely not in the... Um, I'm going to do everything about climate change camp. She was she wanted to restart fracking in Britain, and apparently banned King Charles the Third from. That's Gaul. right. That's right. So he, he he's just had a sort of mini COP COP seven at COP twenty seven at um at uh, Buckingham Palace with a whole bunch of environmental people. But it is it is a little ridiculous that he wasn't allowed to go to um to Sharm el Sheikh. But you know as we as we'll discuss with Bronwyn, I I'm 
extremely skeptical of um, the entire affair now, COP27, COP26. COP you know, mm. Glasgow was not a great success. Uh, and, you know, Ukraine, well, we'll talk, we'll talk with Bronwyn about it, but Ukraine is putting a tremendous amount of pressure on. I mean, there is, there is, I read an argument in The Guardian today that gas is, that gas is now being sold to us as, a, as the green option for climate change, which, of course, in a sense, it is. Yeah, and there's uh, certainly a debate to be had. Yeah, here about using gas as a as a a bridge um, mm. energy um, to, to get us towards 100% renewable. And the danger is if you go hard line on it, you essentially um, rake up your prices to the point where it's too painful for everyone. Now, yeah, well, um, I, I do. You know, you, you know, I'm a bit of a. I was interested, but I am a bit of a skeptic about the government's decision to to end offshore. Uh, oil and gas exploration. But, um, you know, the trouble is somebody, you know, people like James Shaw just don't want that bridge. They don't, you know, they want to go pretty, pretty cold turkey. I, I just noticed someone noticed there, that Greg, I think that um, Greta Thunberg isn't going to this. I mean, she, she right. gen generally won't fly places, uh, but I guess you could, you could get to Egypt by, by train and boat eventually. But, um, you know, she's talked about it just being a, a greenwashing exercise at this point. Yeah, I, I must say that's, yeah, and um, greenwashing is one of those things where everyone is starting to focus on all the claims being made by investors and companies and oil companies. There is a, you know, a window of opportunity where you can uh, claim you're doing things but not actually do them uh, before everyone starts calling bullshit. And we may be at that moment, not just for um, climate change action, but also uh, in terms of regulation. So you're now starting to see the European Union, the US regulators actually starting to clamp down on all the, the claims. And in the last couple of weeks, we've had the Commerce Commission here uh, and the Financial Markets Authority start to dig around and investigate some of the claims about uh, sustainability that pension funds and others have, have got going. Yeah. Um, I see Bronwyn is there. Yes, I'm just yep. going to promote her to panelist now, uh, which is great Lucky to her. see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it's really good that she's able to join us um, because this is a, a big event this weekend. It should get a lot more attention. And um, from the point of view of you know where we are in the world, there's um, only um, one or two really big long-term stories and climate change is one of those ones that just keeps coming back. And for those who are paying subscribers, and of course we welcome them all to the Kaka, um, we uh, are really focused on dealing with um, or focusing on housing affordability, climate change, and child poverty. Um, in my view, they're, they're in a way the same story in that they can be addressed with the same issues, re-engineering our cities for uh, warm, dry, carbon zero homes that mm -hmm. we can all uh, live in and move around in with uh, walking, cycling, um, micro-mobility and the odd electric car here and there. Bronwyn, thank you so much for uh, joining us on The Hoon. I can work out how to turn my microphone on. There you go, <laughs> Look, you're on. Thanks so much for having me, it's great. And sorry, it's a little late. No, no, it's all right. And I wanted to introduce you to, to the co-host, um, Peter Bale, who is, an, is, an, is in what we call the car car, uh, which is in a car uh, in Wellington. Kia ora, Peter. Hi, Bron. And I see you're already in Channel Shape. Uh, yes, no. <laughs> I'm in the University of Canterbury's glorious uh, campus, and that's where I'll stay. I, I'm not really a cop attender, just a, just a cop stalker. <laughs> 
Good. Oh, let's let's let we we can be co co critics together. Yeah. I got well, I got slightly I got slightly um, criticised last night by a chap called David Tong, who you will know, who's some sort of yeah. New Zealand environmental uh, for being for, in in my spin-off piece being too my spin-off thing that I do for members being too gloomy about um, COP27 about the chances of breakthroughs at COP27. Um, we, we then went on to basically agree that there won't be any breakthroughs uh, and that we're all getting a bit desperate. So you know, it wasn't a total council of despair. What, what, how are you, what, are you, what are you looking for to come out of it? Yeah, I think it's very serious. There isn't a lot of good news. Uh, mm. Although there are a couple of things that are important about it. Um, so it's hosted by Egypt and that's difficult for a start, but not as mm -hmm. difficult going to be next year when it's hosted by the United Arab Emirates, which as an oil state, um, Egypt itself hasn't got a good track record of low emissions and it's got a very poor track record on mm. human rights. But where it is strong is it's a strong voice for Africa and for developing countries around finance. So I think what you're going to see is a lot of money thrown at mm. uh, problems, but not necessarily clear. Um, how that's going to reduce emissions and how that's going to be um, what we call climate resilient development, but the yes. joined together adaption plus emission reduction in just and fair ways, which is quite an important concept that government signed off in the last intergovernmental panel on climate change report, the IPCC. Um, I think we'll see a lot of emphasis on adaptation uh, and yeah. probably a big push for a global fund around adaptation and money into that. The small Pacific states might actually really get some traction. And it's interesting that I think New Zealand is taking a film crew that's making a study from Massey mm -hmm. on loss and damages, which just makes me wonder, are we going to see New Zealand make a statement like Scotland did and actually be the second country that puts money into a loss and damages fund for um, yeah. irreversible reparations? Know. Yep. Um, but can I just ask you a, a thing about the um, the uh, adaptation? Because you know, I've been reading a lot about this. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, a couple of years ago, and I, I did again put it in the spin-off thing this week. The Economist did a very good kind of climate change piece where it kind of split it in two between mitigation and and adaptation. Adaptation is an admission to some extent. That we're not going to get to the 1.5, isn't it? The emphasis that we'll—I mean, I'm just it, in terms of how our readers, our listeners, should think about when they start hearing about adaptation, because they'll probably also hear, won't they, about um, um, geo, you know, geo engineering. Yeah, and all the high tech that will save us and all of that stuff. Yeah, um, which it won't, and it's probably only going to exacerbate inequality. So I think the thing about adaptation is that we need it anyway people are highly exposed. We're only spending about a quarter of the international finance on adaption that we're spending currently on mitigation. And the trouble is that it's not reaching the most vulnerable groups. It's being spent on big seawalls and sirens and early warning systems. And all the research is telling us that um, the trouble with the big seawalls and everything is that it encourages more people to build in um, yeah. high places and it's still not reaching informal settlements where the bulk of the population in the world is are starting to live um, and will be living by the middle of the century. And 
yeah, we we need adaptation, but we need to do it in this climate resilient development way of trying to actually do both. And it's not always easy. Um, and it's a very difficult conversation. As a plane's going yeah, over I, in a Northwest yeah, Christchurch. Right. That's right. Go ahead, Bennett. Sorry. Yeah, uh, Bronwyn, I, I wanted to get a sense from you of the big picture going into this conference, uh, given the UN Environmental Programme's assessment that with the current policies, we're going to have warming of well over two degrees with the risk of a, of a, of a you know, cascading tipping point effects that, that gets away on us. Um, since the Paris Agreement, when maybe you could argue there was a, a bit more hope uh, we've seen uh, not only Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, you know, force the likes of Germany and others to dig up coal again, and also you've got um, China and the United States uh, really not in a cooperative mood, whereas back, back with the Paris Agreement, they were in a more cooperative mood. How is the sort of geopolitics leading up to this conference making it more difficult? It's, it's making it more difficult, <laughs> but it's always been difficult. And um, the one bit of good news that I took out of last week's dismal news um, is we had expected that the whole effect of Russia invading Ukraine would be a really huge uptake in fossil fuels again. Mm. But the International Energy Agency is saying actually that didn't happen. Renew, um, renewable fuels have really, uh, renewable energy sources have really stepped up. And so we haven't mm. seen a massive rebound that we expected. So that's good news. Um, the rest of it is not so great. Mm. That, but, um, but having said that, it's really important to remember that 24 countries in the world have sustained declining emissions for over a decade. And, and two of those are the United States and the UK, and, and that actually in New Zealand, we are an outlier. We really haven't been able to do that. And I think if we could cut through all the political noise on the left and the right, um, Hewaka Ekanoa, my controversial statement for the night, is a good thing. Um, it has real potential where we've seen, if we, where we've seen farmers take innovative action at the farm level so that they've got some sense of control which we know in politics is what New Zealanders mm. love they mm. love to have a sense of agency and control so at their farm level they've been able to measure emissions in their own terms there's still debate about is the equipment working there's still a lot of debate is it fair to dump sheep and beef in with dairy where there's more wiggle room let alone in yes. with um, deer and venison but and also we really need to be able to show and, and enable farmers to be able to count things like their, the bush that they've protected, mm. all of that. But once we actually get that right, and once you start getting farms that are getting a premium price for low emission uh, green products, then you can already see a generation shift happening mm. within agriculture. And when you look at where the loud voices are coming from at the moment, it's not coming from the younger farmers. Not, I mean, farming is aging as a population, but there is a real sh generational shift going on. And I think it's mainly coming kind of, from, the, from the MP for Epsom, isn't it? I couldn't. <laughs> who, well, who, so far as I know, is not a farmer. I know. I do find it. I was just talking to the um, Institute of Port and Ag, in a previous life, I worked for, I lectured for 10 years at Lincoln and um, learnt a lot. And I think that 
we underestimate the potential for practical, pragmatic solutions by getting into this kind of chorus of either farmers are completely trying to skim the system or that or that um, the urban communities are never going to listen, they're never going to understand this. Mm. That would be terrible because we're just polarizing like the US. But I don't think I don't think we will. I think if we can yeah, get through the selection, if we can get through the selection without everyone playing to their worst base, and I wasn't that thrilled to hear um, to hear uh, the leader of the opposition kind of doing his regional roundup and talking about the ability of oceans to absorb um, yeah. or something. More. I mean, it was an off the cuff thing where you think, gosh, actually, you know better than that. You've chaired major sustainability yeah. groups. Uh, have you got, you know, that isn't helpful and it isn't true. Yeah. But at the same time, labor needs to be able to actually allow farming to do exercise some leadership because, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's my little and, and we do and we, and, yeah, and we know, but and we do know though that since 1985, with the removal of subsidies, that you know the New Zealand farming industry, New Zealand farmers have been incredibly adaptable, in all sorts of ways. You know, um, it but is it is really extraordinary. Subsidies, yeah, I was interested that a lot of the farming sectors were talking about that removal of subsidies in two ways. I mean, there's still the great trauma of the effect of that for mental health and well-being for communities but also the embarrassment that farming had been so propped up i mean i hadn't sort of thought about it as embarrassing but yeah that's how it was framed um so yeah it's an interesting time and i think every country is going through this how do we deal with our biggest industry whether it's coal whether mm. it's dairy whether it's oil how do we manage that um and yeah. In a place like... wants to ask you about oh. Russia, but let me, let me just ask you one, 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 possibly two questions about New Zealand again, because I, I was really, I mean, I, I think that's very interesting that, you know, attack on your big industry. The difficulty, of course, in New Zealand's case is that it's because that big industry produces a lot of methane rather than other, you know, which is a, 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 a rather than other, other types of um, greenhouse gases. And yet we've got 80, 85% uh, renewables, you know, in our own energy consumption. So we have this really strange ledger. Uh, I, do, is it possible that the government is pushing farming too strongly in this and isn't no. defending the other part <laughs> no. of the economy? No, although the, although the Environment Commissioner was pretty blunt with me that he thought I was starting to sound like Greenpeace when I was saying yes. we need to go over 10%. <laughs> uh, I would say, no, we can do better, but we have to actually recognise that it we have got special circumstances. That's what the legislation lets you do. The Paris Agreement lets you recognise special circumstances. Um, and also there's a big part of the debate has shifted that we haven't really understood in New Zealand. In previously, methane was picked on because it suited the coal and the oil industry yeah. who yeah, have yeah. that fight. But there's another part of the argument that has shifted now because we are seeing our temperatures growing so rapidly and because methane is such an, a significant gas in trapping heat that actually reducing it quickly matters. Um, so there's a lot of international interest in, in reducing methane in that way. But I think um, we still need to recognise that there are many ways that we have to actually work on our key industry 
Yeah. So one, one, more okay, question, right. one more question, Bronwyn, before I hand you over to Bernard about Russia. We, we've discussed on this show and uh, read that the Business Desk ran a, ran a series of pieces by um, I think David Frame and uh, Adrian Macy, who you will know, who are two you know, climate experts to some extent. And it really called into question this, particularly this issue of the forecast of between 18 and $30 billion of buying overseas carbon credits as being essentially the strategy that James um, Shaw took to, took to Glasgow. And I, I question whether the public is ever going to accept $30 billion of effect, effectively being shipped offshore rather than investing in green technology and adaptation here. I'm just having to uh, mute the flights that are going over here in the Norwester. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree, but we have a real difficulty that we have allowed over the years our ledger to build up to such an extent. We have a huge debt. And I, I am very anxious that we can't do this with carbon. We can't do this with planting trees around New Zealand no. that are great pine forests. Um, we do have to reduce our emissions, but it's going to be really hard. So there is, it, it is, I haven't got an easy answer for that. It's mm. hard. Well, Bronwyn, um, our, our Prime Minister is not going to COP27, um, but James Shaw is. And it was interesting to see him uh, not take any extra commitments on, uh, on top of what we've already made, whereas some other countries have. And he, he made the point that um, one of the reasons that, that we're not taking anything extra with us this time is that the government is waiting for the High Court decision on the uh, lawyers, uh, climate uh, lawyers action. Um, do you think that our government is uh, being urgent enough, uh, in particular the Labour side of the government, in addressing not... Obviously, there's been a lot of action on the farming, but in particular, the emissions in town and from transport. I did hear that comment. I thought it was a bit disingenuous. I think there is a bit of frustration. I'm sorry to any of the lawyers that took the case. There is a bit of a frustration. It was a very complex case that's hard to understand. And I'm not, I think it was a bit of an own goal, if I was really honest. I mean, look, just let's raise our emissions. We don't need to have a court case about it. Let's just push for the government to raise emissions. But um, that said, uh, with due apologies to um, my legal colleagues, um, yeah, the government could still reduce its, it could, and we are supposed to, every government is supposed to commit every year to mm. winding that, um, tightening that screw and at least reducing our emissions a little bit more and a little bit more and only 24 countries this year have done that, uh, and we're not one of them. And um, yeah, that is a really missed opportunity. Sorry, I forgot the rest of the question. Oh, no, no, no. Um, oh, but uh, going there without something else to offer, I think maybe what we're going to see is um, supporting the Pacific on the loss and damages, this big support for the Pacific. He's also going with the leader of the opposition's climate spokesperson. And, and we're burning our fossil fuels as we speak uh, in tourism. We're not, it's not just dairy that's our big yeah. problem. It's, uh, um, 
it's a shame that the agriculture ministers aren't going and the agriculture spokesperson. It would be really great if they were involved. And I think it's always been a problem that we've had a Minister of Climate out of Cabinet. It means that they're just not there at the table. It's really frustrating. We need to have Treasury, we need to have the ministries all at that table, all fighting all the time and all listening to the same conversations. So I think that hasn't helped us, no. Just finally, um, uh, Bronwyn, uh, we've had the results of the council elections in the last few weeks and, and the um, elevation of some uh, mayors who seem not very happy about the move towards mode shift, cycling. Uh, there seems to be some, some uh, um, hate for orange cones. Uh, <laughs> And That's probably wonder, universal. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wondered uh, what you thought of the shifting political mood at a local level, where often these decisions around transport, parking, um, housing, many of the sort of nitty gritty, which actually determines our emissions, those are where the decisions are made. Yeah, I think there's multiple things happening at the same time that are worrying. It, it, it worries me that I talk to elderly voters and community groups in the evenings and a lot of, there's a lot of disinformation, a lot of confusion, a lot of anger. Um, and it also worries me that it seems to be okay now. It's a new style of leadership to um, be an elder elected um, mayor and just sound off into the ether and not actually working with a group around the table which is the old style of governance so I'm not sure how long that's going to last um, it's just hard I mean this but but fundamentally there are some big structural changes that have happened that and one is that we have got a climate commission. We have finally got climate legislation. We've finally got recognition that it is a big risk to the New Zealand economy. Um, and eventually things will change because the architecture and the public understanding is so much further than it was even five years ago. Yeah. Mm. I remember fear, good, on you, good, on you from an, good on you for making this not a complete council of despair. And, and to address an issue that we frequently uh, bring up here, I saw an advertisement, I mean, because I'm I'm driving down State Highway 1 essentially to take the temperature of the entire country. No, 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 in a, in a, in a, no, we'll, no we'll, not yet. We'll, we'll but that's a bloody good idea. I did pass at tremendous speed several uh, Build Your Dreams um, Chinese-made electric cars, mm. which looked pretty bloody cool, actually, and I would be prepared to drive one. Uh, and I'm certainly prepared for them to sponsor my co-hosting of Bernard's podcast. But <laughs> I was struck in Taupo that um, uh, LDV, which is another Japanese uh, manuf Chinese manufacturer that used to be Leyland in the UK, uh, is offering a, an electric um, double cab ute. So there you go, Bernard. Problem solved when you move to Auckland. You can have a, a, black, <laughs> uh, a black electric um, ute that you don't need in Hearn Bay. That's right. I need to drive from Hearn Bay to Ponsonby Road and park my double cab ute. Bloody good idea. Is, yeah, that's good. Um, thank, thank you so much, uh, Bronwyn, um, for jumping on to the Hoon. We really appreciate it. And uh, we love the greenery in the background and um, all the action overhead. It's, it's all happening here on the Hoon this afternoon. It is. Uh, look, thanks so much for having me. It was really great. See you. Cheers. Uh, thank you, Bronwyn. Please come again.
Yeah. No, um, uh, lovely to talk to Bronwyn, who's done so much um, work on her own, simply raising the issues in New Zealand, and of course, helping to produce the IPCC report. Now, Bernard, uh, can I ask you a political, a New Zealand political question? Sure. Because I heard you being talked about on the wireless this morning. Oh, did good. You, did you did you hear one of the people on the political panel on morning no. report refer to you? No. Oh, Hopefully it was, it, actually, it, was, it was good. I tell you, I tell you what, I have seldom heard this week more i've been unfortunately listening to listening to rnz several times during the day and if, if i have to listen to wallace chapman or jesse mulligan <laughs> anymore i'm going to have to download 50 different more podcasts so that i exactly. can avoid listening to them at all yep. but they did somebody one of the people on the political panel referred to your um story this week about or your your analysis this week about uh three waters mm, yeah. and the idea that jacinda had driven past the off-ramp waving yeah <laughs> uh, you know and that the mayors had potentially offered her offered her a um an oh, yeah. off-ramp and i was struck yeah. again particularly in the manawatu you know as you know as driving at 120 110 kilometers an hour i was able to take in the temperature of the entire country on the way down <laughs> there's a shitload of signs that are anti anti three waters yeah. Yeah. No, it, it really has struck, struck a nerve in provincial New Zealand. And often, you're right, when you drive into town, there'll be a billboard at, uh, on the way into town, anti-three yeah. waters. Yeah, my and, brother has one in his garden. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the irony is, of course, that three waters is really about the big cities and getting infrastructure built in the big cities. A lot of these rural schemes will actually not be covered or not change much because of three waters. The co-governance uh, angle has completely um, shifted the tone and yeah. the, um, the aggression the of the debate. Though, isn't it, really? Yeah, um, and I actually uh, agree with some of the complaints about the vagueness of the governance structures for three waters, yes. the way that it's no, no, working. There is, in theory, going to be four new off-balance sheet entities uh, which have boards, and above them is a, new, is a sort of interim uh, board which uh, involves um, members of councils and, and then members of iwi, which yeah. in itself is um, uh, appointed by, it looks like, the central government, and it really disconnects these, um, these big bodies from the um, the ratepayers, the taxpayers. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's very them. much like this health authority. I, I have a feeling that, and also, it's not weirdly, it's not dissimilar to this strange uh, foundational board that's that's for pushing the merger of TVNZ and RNZ, which is all a sort of Wellington mm. Wellington led, Labour led thing, maybe a Maori caucus led thing. I don't know, but I, I reckon Bernard, you could do the public a great deal of service by republishing both this week's analysis, but that one that you did a few weeks ago, because. I think it's one of the finest, simplest, least uh, racially based, least polarized analyses of what actually Three Waters is trying to do. Because I, I just, I still think it's become shorthand for many other things. Yeah, unfortunately, it's become a topic for uh, dog whistling um, in politics. And unfortunately, a lot of politics now is about um, finding your tribe and, and then finding issues to shout from one tribe to the other tribe. And in the end, there yeah. isn't, actually, isn't actually a communication or a, or a discussion which finds a way to some sort of consensus where you can move both move forward together. And oh, the problem... Bernard, but, but, but that moves us, that allows, so please take my, my um, and I think you could do this a lot, actually. Some of your columns could be, like, could have a chunk in them 
about sort of evergreen must reads just be, just because I think mm. you're doing a, a service mm. of doing that. Yeah, no, the, the shouting good... and polarity. The shouting and polarity is going to be completely resolved by Elon Musk uh, taking ownership of Twitter and fixing it all up, right? Oh, fantastic segue. That's yeah. that's excellent work. Yeah, uh, I'm just yeah. wondering how to whether I do. In, so, can I also point out it's actually a white tick on a blue background? not a blue tick, but everybody oh. calls it the blue tick. But, wow. you know, it is a very interesting set of problems that he is uh, coming hard up against as a libertarian information wants to be free extremist in this area or absolutist in this area. And, you know, it is a very, very complex area when you get, when there are as many trolls and bots and bastards out there mm. who will steal, steal one's identity but, I mean, the use of the N-word over the weekend mm, yeah. on Twitter was just disgusting. Mm. And unfortunately, and, a lot and of those gigantic people, volume. Yeah, and unfortunately, when people saw that Musk had uh, taken it over and was talking about um, changing the moderation policies, uh, a lot of people who had been forced off and had decided to leave Twitter came back on to try it on, basically. Yeah. And so that um, increased the volume. One of the issues, I think, that um, there is some hope with is that the sheer economically uh, uh, difficult position of Twitter in that as a money-raising mm. vehicle, it's not nearly as profitable as Facebook or as Google YouTube. And um, one of uh, Musk's problems will be to get in there and start raising money in other ways other than from advertisers many of whom actually, uh, I wouldn't call it a boycott, but certainly suspended. Yeah, or no, I agree. I think, I think that boycott will come sooner rather than later. Mm. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's interesting because New Zealand is one of the, so what he's going to do, you, you may not know about a product called Twitter Blue. Mm. And Twitter Blue is allows you the edit button and it, allow, and it creates a kind of subscription product beneath it. And so he's going to merge the verification tag with Twitter Blue. And New Zealand is one of only four markets i didn't realize it. i think it's partly because my twitter account is still linked to linked to the uk um but new zealand is one of only four or five markets in the world u.s canada and australia i think, I think it's u.s canada australia and new zealand have twitter blue so we will be the first to experiment with this new functionality in twitter and to decide whether we want to pay eight dollars or whatever it is a month to um to retain this level of identity i mean it, it matters less to me as a co-host of you know New Zealand's second most successful um, uh, podcast, but you know if you think of something somewhere like the BBC, which has you know four thousand journalists or so, or Reuters with two thousand journalists, that's a lot of people that you do not want being spoofed by other people without the blue tick. You know if you're if you're the if you're the Bloomberg Fed correspondent, yeah, and someone pretends to be you with a you know. Uh, a, a message about the Federal Reserve, that's, that has consequences. Yeah. No, it, it's a fascinating problem. I've actually applied for the blue tick and got rejected, which it's, that's fine. Um, uh, but what I thought was interesting this week, aside from um, Elon Musk taking it on and uh, um, uh, kicking off his usual uh, chaos machine, is that this week, Substack, uh, launch. Yes, I saw its, that. It's chat product. Now, for, for those people who have the um, Substack app, and I'd recommend you, you all download it, it's now available on 
Android as well as uh, iOS, the Apple system. You can read all of our posts. You can uh, listen to our podcasts on the app. And in the Apple version at the moment, you can also uh, effectively do a thing called chat. So it's a bit like comments, but it allows us to do things like um, start comments, comment um, threads in a very, I suppose you could call it Twitterish, Facebookish way. The key thing is that it doesn't do what Twitter and Facebook uh, do, which is create a news feed that's algorithmically decided where advertising is mixed with um, comments and news. And uh, the great people at Substack um, were, were nice enough to include me in the beta trial yeah. for uh, chat. And um, it's been really um, fun to uh, chat, so to speak, with paying subscribers to the Kaka over at the chat function. It allows me a bit more freedom to um, not have to write a full post. And sometimes I have, I suppose you could call it disposable views. I, I see something that's interesting. I hope I can add some sort of analysis or insight and then just put out a very short thing to start a discussion. Yeah. And also a chance to ask paying subscribers to the Kaka what they'd like to see um, and to give them a heads up when something's happening. So for example, this week when the Reserve Bank held its um, financial stability report, uh, just after the jobs figures, um, we I, I jumped onto the chat just to ask people what it is they'd like yeah. to know from the financial stability report, and we had a, a good old discussion there. So I'd highly recommend everyone uh, sign up to it. And the Android uh, app will have the chat function within a uh, uh, six or seven weeks, I'm told. And uh, then we can really go to town on it, so to speak. Uh, I don't think it's a replacement for the Facebook news feed or for Twitter, but what it does is it allows the creation of communities with safe places where people mm. are able to, like humans, have discussions about things where they may not agree about things, but not to insult or to um, uh, uh, smear or uh, troll. And I must say the tone of the discussion, I'm so thrilled on Substack uh, in the comment threads under the articles um, and the podcasts, but also in the chat sessions sections as well, that the tone of the discussion is very much um, collegial and um, uh, human, actually, human. This is the thing. Yeah, are, I was really struck. We should stop making this an advertisement for Substack, although I am thinking of moving my review newsletter to Substack. But uh, our friend there, the CEO, Hamish McKenzie, who's a Kiwi, mm. made some very amusing comments today, you know, talking about uh, a dictator taking over Twitter. And it's, of course, particularly amusing because um, Hamish used to work for Elon at Tesla yeah, and uh, left in rather difficult circumstances, I think. Yeah, and wrote a very good biography about Elon Musk. Yeah. Um, Hamish is, uh, in my view, one of the great... Um, uh, yeah, he said we, we shouldn't need to fret so much about a dictator holding dominion over a vast media empire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no. I, I'm, he's fighting a really good fight, Hamish, and uh, one of the um, Kiwis uh, working overseas, doing great work in digital publishing and trying to find a model for uh, writers and publishers and podcasters to find a community which supports them. And that's what um, Substack's doing. And you're right, here endeth the ad. <laughs> so that's yeah. um, uh, Speaking of America, we have some midterm elections coming up uh, on Tuesday uh, night. You, you were living in America for a while. 
and um, uh, worked in Washington and understand how important these elections are. Peter, for those people who, who may not have heard about the midterms and- Well, Jesus, uh, that would be a sleep. I don't know what that, you know, even, even RNZ carries the midterms when it's not talking yeah. about the All Blacks and the, and the Black Ferns. Um, yeah. yeah no, I, I, one of the most extraordinary aspects of it, I was listening today to a very good podcast by, uh, Ian. I mean, there are podcasts, other podcasts that people are available to listen to other than the Hoon, um, is by Ian Bremer from, um, uh, from the um, Euro, whatever the hell it's called, group called G Zero Media. And he had Susan Glasser and her husband, uh, who've just published a book about, very good book about Trump. Mm. And they were pointing out that uh, it looks like he may well announce his uh, candidacy, candidacy for 2024 next week, oh, no. that he'll take the results of the midterms as a, as a bonus. Plus, maybe he'll be back on Twitter within, within a little while. And this whole shenanigans will we will be going again so you know it looks like the democrats as you say will be will be losing control of the house probably um and again we're just going to get another two years of nonsense and i guess it's really good just how much um joe biden has been able to achieve particularly on the climate you know on these gigantic climate subsidies that he's that he's put in which some of which of course go to oil and gas companies but you know we can forgive him for that perhaps yeah, I mean, and also a genius piece of um, political jujitsu by essentially calling uh, a lot of uh, subsidies for electrification of the American yeah, economy. Anti-inflation. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, in terms of uh, political genius, that's uh, right up there. And um, I think uh, he, you're right, once the Democrats lose control of the House, and even if, I mean, it's quite possible they could also lose the Senate, you then have essentially the last two years of Biden's presidency. And of course, we don't know yet whether he's going Atrophy. to, yeah. uh, speaking going to of, go, so speaking go of Speaking of political Lazarus acts, Benjamin Net Netanyahu, who I thought had, you know, garlic around, his, around our necks and he'd actually, you know, had a stake put through his heart, recovers. I mean, what an extraordinary, I, I personally, they find him absolutely ghastly but what an extraordinary survivor uh and and you know but the, you know the, the, it comes at a really dramatic cost to israeli democracy it would appear because the extreme and extreme is, is hardly the hardly a, an extreme enough word for it for this group that has joined him is now the third largest party and you know this is this is uh led by a guy who walked through that that critical neighborhood in jerusalem uh, which which his supporters are trying to um, are trying to run a run a uh, eviction program of the existing the remaining few Palestinian families in that area walked through brandishing a gun, you know this this is a really and and this guy may end up being the minister of um, state security. What's the what's so the it's a very there? there's a very very big risk here that you're going from whatever one thinks of as the origins of of. Um, uh, a Jewish state, and I would thoroughly recommend reading Simon Sharma's wonderful book, The Story of the mm. Jews, about this. But you know, we're talking about a level of um, Zionist extremist extremism that has not mm. been seen at government level in Israel, or with the power that they that this party will now have. It's very interesting and dangerous. So, so what's gone on in Israel? And there used to be a, quite a, a liberal, secular uh, Jewish community in in Israel that saw itself in, a, in progressive terms, 
of course, it wasn't necessarily um, uh, uh, completely peaceful, but at least it, it wasn't, it didn't see Israel as a, well, the, a the, vehicle, the, vehicle for a religious. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it was the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin that led us yeah. to this. And and this guy, the leader leader of Asma Yehudit party, um, Itmar Ben-Gavir, was not implicated, but was was entirely not unhappy to have Rabin assassinated. And, and that was the last that was the last moment in our lifetimes. You know, when you had the Os mm -hmm. Oslo Accords, you had goodwill on both sides, or to some extent, you had Peter. Um, you know, you didn't have Hamas being so strong in Gaza, Gaza and you didn't have uh, a um, let's just a silly old man like Mahmoud Abbas in the in the uh, in in the in the West Bank. You know, you had serious people who'd gone through serious business like Yasser Arafat, Yitzhak Rabin. You know, you had yeah. people who people who understood what it meant to shake hands in the on in the at the on the White House lawn. And you just don't have that now. And then you've yeah. got Netanyahu, of course, who, who, although there is one aspect about this, and of course, if you remember um, Ariel Ariel Sharon, you know, who who was a, had been a general, was a, had a proud, you know, very very proud Zionist history, military history. You know, it took, you know, he was he he pulled pulled out of Gaza. You know, it, sometimes it does take a hardline person to actually. Do the deal, or do the do the, you know, take the steps as it did in the UK with, with uh, Northern Ireland. It was you know it was the Conservative government that really got it moving, and then Tony Blair that got it done. But it's it's just such an interesting problem, and I, it's a flashpoint for Iran. You know, you've got the JCPO, the 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 nuke, nuclear deal is in shreds. Iran is you know supplying um, weapons to um, to Russia in Ukraine this is none of it and, and Israel knows that those you know they'll be watching very closely the, the use of those Iranian drones in um, mm. in Ukraine or against Ukraine so it's all rather fluid and unpleasant and difficult uh, and and whatever happens in Israel has a habit of spilling over yeah um, we, we have to hope that um, it stays uh, reasonably peaceful because you're right the balance of power in the Middle East is being shaken not just by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has pulled, is, seems to be pulling Iran into the process. It seems to have delayed or blocked the potential um, uh, restart of yeah. the Iranian nuclear deal. Which, of course, and, Netanyahu will, will not. Netanyahu is dead against the Iranian nuclear deal, yep. no matter what. Yeah. But just, just let me. One of, one of our readers, and, and forgive me because I'm on the phone and you're seeing your chat just go through. The book I mentioned was Simon Sharma's book, um, the, his, the Story of the Jews. It's yep. an absolutely, it's, I think it's in two volumes, although he may not have finished volume two. It's a wonderful BBC documentary as well. Also, Benjamin, Benjamin Netanyahu's father was a great Israeli historian uh, and, and you know, has wrote some magnificent books. I'm also told, based on what I read for doing my spin-off piece this week, um, that Benjamin Netanyahu's own biography that's out uh, just now uh, called BB, my story, mm -hmm. um, where he, where he predicted that his um, his uh, period out of government would be just a hiatus. But apparently, it's also extremely well written and really funny, really interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I also one of the I mean I, I I find Netanyahu just 
deeply objectionable. And I always remember, it's worth Googling it, the fantastic uh, hot mic uh, in Paris once that caught um, uh, President Obama and President Macron talking about, about him and saying, about Netanyahu and saying, but he's such a liar. You have to talk. <laughs> you think you've got problems. I have to talk to him all the time. He's such a liar. It was just fabulous. Mm. I'm just putting your uh, weekly bulletin up oh, here thank you in very the chat, much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, which has a lot more information about what's going on there. It's um, it's uh, really interesting. Obviously, the other big thing this week was the Brazilian result. We're, talking, we're looking around the world for some hope. Uh, Lula's um, yeah, defeat. yeah, it was very interesting. People were saying this week that we've only now got um, you know Orban Orban uh, Orban left. I think there was another one actually that they mentioned. But you know, but on the other hand, we've got Lukashenko, Putin. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Lula coming back is an extremely interesting, uh, situation, but the, he doesn't come back to quite the same, you know, we, 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 no one talks about bricks anymore. The, you know, the, yeah. the, the great Jim O'Neill from Goldman Sachs phrase about the, 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 the emerging economies that would take over the world, which was Brazil, Russia, Indonesia, and China. You know, when did you last hear about Russia being a significant mm -hmm. economy? It isn't. Um, Brazil is, of course, and it's also South America's biggest democracy. But I, I, I haven't read, I, you know, I don't mean to be a doomsayer here. Um, there are two months for the handover. Um, Lula doesn't take over until January the 1st. And the highly conditioned way in which Bolsonaro acknowledged defeat mm. made me kind of nervous about the robustness of the Brazilian constitution. And we've got to remember that he, you know, he's he's a former army guy uh, in the army, um, ruled Brazil from 1964 to I think 1985. So, uh, you know, one could be hopeful. The other, I mean, Lula was really was incredibly imaginative about. Um, I mean, he was he was riding a commodities boom, but he was very imaginative about tax and welfare and um, benefits for the poor but also things like promoting the edu education amongst the poor, really sophisticated, complex ways to use um, tax and fiscal policy to, to promote social good. And um, really for Latin America gave a lot of hope and triggered um, a, a lot of the um, shifts to the left in, in many of those countries many of which are still there and have come along. Um, and yeah, I'm sorry, somebody just pointed out that BRICS, there's, there's two I's in BRICS if you include India, of course, ah, yeah, thanks. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and Jesus, I, hate, actually, I hate being sub-edited by our own readers. <laughs> well, it's, it's a wonderful community we have. Actually, I where, don't hate it, I love it, thank you. Because <laughs> we're both, both editors ourselves. Um, yeah. And uh, you're right about the BRICS thing. We don't talk about it much anymore. And one of the reasons I think is that China you know, the, the big boy on the block, if you like, its growth has really slowed down. And the yeah. and COVID zero. Mm, you know, yeah. it's an, and I don't know whether you know, I, I was listening again to an excellent podcast today because I was trying to avoid listening to um, Jesse, what's his name, and, uh, and Wallace. Um, very, very good one. A special, a special one. And there's a fabulous economist series called The Prince. And they've just done a special one to, or two special editions. Uh, supplementary editions to discuss the um, Communist Party Congress, which we talked about, I think, two weeks ago now. And she has appointed uh, uh, the author of one of the great sort of um, Communist Party tracts on um, growth and business and the need for state control, 
has appointed him as the go-between between the government and the technology industry and Chinese industry. And I think it does not bode well for the likes of um, Alibaba and Tencent and and even for ByteDance, the, the company that owns TikTok. Um, yeah. You know, this, this period, is, I'm starting to think that um, our friend Rodney Jones, uh, who's made a lot of money and, and success uh, advising people about China, might actually know more than I do about this. And so he's right that I should be nowhere near as naive and optimistic as I have been about China. Yeah, it's not looking good for uh, China. I'm just going to put a link up to that series, The Prince, which is, uh, I know from looking at the charts, is one of the most popular podcasts in New Zealand at the moment. So if you haven't um, watched it, it's free, done by The Economist, as Peter says, it's absolutely essential. Extremely uh, well researched. And it's yeah. it's just like, you know, I, I binged, I binged listen, listen to it. And uh, yeah, it was extremely good. And I'd also, if you're looking for some extra reading, um, one, I, one of the most compelling pieces of journalism I saw this week, and I don't know if you saw it, Peter. Um, you sent it to me. Is, it, is this the one about the FT guy going into yes, lockdown? Yes. Do, do explain it to everybody else. Yes. So um, a young journalist for the Financial Times um, who had been waiting to get into China for two years, stuck in Hong Kong, no doubt brushing up his various languages, um, eventually got to Shanghai uh, about three or four weeks ago and uh, was in his hotel, went out to a bar for, for a beer and came back to his hotel. Uh, unfortunately, while he was in the bar, someone else who was a contact of someone with COVID was there. And because everyone has to have an app which says where you are and whether or not you're a contact, his app flashed up red. And within minutes, uh, a, um, I would say a goon is a, perhaps a, a pretty aggressive, strong word, but someone dressed in a hazmat suit turned up at his, his hotel door and said, right, we're off to a quarantine center. Where is the quarantine? Well, I'm not telling you where the quarantine center is. Mm. And, and so what um, uh, the, the journalist, whose name is Thomas Hale, has done is just literally first person reporting of being taken away to a COVID quarantine center in China. And it is the most extraordinary piece of um, reportage, giving you some essential insight into how China is battling COVID. And it is, yeah. it is big brother personified. It is just, yeah, well, it was very, it was very notable thing. also in this. Group of group of seven, including she that that, that were appointed um, or reappointed last week at the at the at the Congress. Um, one of them was the mayor of Shanghai or the governor of Shanghai, who had you know presided over what what many people saw as a botched and controversial lockdown, but he's been rewarded with it. And um, when you talk to a lot of the uh, international <laughs> companies, who were already nervous about um, the way. Uh, Xi had changed the nature of the relationship with the rest of the world. For example, Fonterra, before it um, bailed out of China, had to have a Communist Party committee at, of at senior levels in its own businesses in China. Yeah, well, when I was doing some when I was doing some consulting for CCTV, the Chinese broadcaster, um, you know, many of my colleagues would zip away to to the weekly meet the weekly meeting. <laughs> at, at various points. Yeah, I mean, it, so it, it, let, let's talk just briefly about interest rates. It's very interesting seeing the seeing mm. um, the Bank of England do 0.75, Fed doing 0.75. Yeah, and and yet hearing Adrian. I don't. I yeah, it's Adrian, all on. Yeah, what's what's Adrian's next step? Aid, our mate, aid. 
I know. Well, it looks, um, Adrian, is he is likely to do a 75 as well on November the 23rd. So we're only three weeks or so away from that because uh, our inflation is uh, still running strong at 7.2% and the wages and jobs numbers we got this week also showed a labor market that's very strong. For example, um, you've got private sector hourly wage growth uh, running at over 8%. Um, now, like for like, uh, you know, same job, same hour of work uh, mm. is closer to five or so percent. But but when you calculate how much extra cash people are taking home at the moment, because we have more people per household working, working longer hours at higher wages, you've actually got gross household incomes rising at more than 10 percent, an annual rate of more than 10 percent. Mm. Now, that is great for household finances. It means that all the doom and gloom I think about recessions and mortgage sales is, is wrong. Uh, obviously, here we're talking about homeowners who are in a much healthier are we, position. Are we talking ourselves into it too much, Bernard? Which is, which is a you know, well-known fact that you can, you know, mm. media included, can talk a country into a recession. Yeah, um, that is um, one of the risks here. And certainly, I'm the, I was one of those... Um, uh, Pollyanna types this week who came out after the jobs numbers and the Reserve Bank statement after we had some other economists and commentators, you know, warn of intense stress on the financial sector, risks of mortgagee sales, worries about falling house prices, worries about negative equity. As I pointed out in my article, which hopefully um, everyone got a chance to read and which, which, which I went deep into the numbers, you can see that actually New Zealand households and businesses are very well stocked up with capital. They have lots of equity and um, are very easily able to pay these higher interest rates. Even those people who bought at the very peak early last year, they were, weren't allowed to get a loan unless they could mm. afford to handle an interest rate with a seven in front of it. And also, even though they might not have much equity left on paper or in pixel form, uh, for those people who look at homes.co.nz to analyze the value of their home, um, they aren't, they, they've got jobs and they've got incomes rising at at least 10% plus. So I think a lot of the nervousness about um, the economy, the banks, the housing markets, people being able to pay mortgages is overdone. And I personally think that Nicola Willis, who sent out a tweet this week talking about mortgage mayhem, um, probably overdid it. And uh, have, if she'd been able to look at the numbers for the um, uh, past due and non-performing loans for mortgages, which are currently 0.2%, 0.2% of New Zealand's mortgages are behind, that mm -hmm. is a sixth one-sixth of the level of non-performing loans that we had in 2009. So um, we don't have an issue there. The I think you need to get out more, Bernard, onto the, onto the radio because, <laughs> I, no, I, I, I mean it because I, I just, I do wonder whether we, whether we are being talked into a recession or talked into, you know, there's a lot of people in our feed here very rightly saying that things are expensive and difficult, but, you know, this, this not to be, you're, and you're not being Pollyanna, you're, you're being very pragmatic about what the reality is. And you know you're you're actually saying what Grant Robertson probably ought to be saying. In fact, I did hear him say more or less that New Zealand is very well equipped. Yeah, um, that is uh, it's true that I'm getting out there a bit. I was on the project uh, last uh, night and um, have been on radio a couple of times as well. And that I see as part of my role is to do the work, uh, the public interest journalism work here for subscribers, and then get the work out there so that the public can 
see it, um, and I'm having a good crack at that. Uh, as our readers say in the comments, we have to be careful not to be too broad. Um, there are people who are struggling, particularly those who are renting. Uh, I think those on precarious incomes yep. who haven't had nearly as much help or cash um, adv advanced to them by the government in the last two or three years are, of course, in trouble. And you certainly see that in the numbers for food parcels. And of course, we've got 5,000 kids living in motels still. So there's an awful lot of work to do. But what I'm saying is those who argue we need tax breaks for rich people because they're struggling to pay their mortgages are wrong. I, I thought we needed, no, 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 no. I, we, we need tax cuts for rich people so that they can invest in the, in the economy. Well, that's not exactly what happens. People put their money straight into the bank or ironically want to buy government bonds, which is, again, part of the craziness. As I pointed out in a, a response in one of the uh, Ask Me Anything questions today, one of the reasons we're in this mess is that for the Jesus last 20 and years... Jesus and calling me Peter Trust now. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> anyway, Irony yeah, one of the just to finally end up here and let people go home and uh, have um, dinner and the likes. Uh, one of the reasons we're in this mess is that widening inequality allowed um, huge piles of cash to uh, uh, concentrate in the hands of those who are older, richer, were less inclined to risk their money in businesses and more inclined to stash their money into the lowest risk but most liquid investments, which are government bonds. And the irony is for the last 20 years, when governments should have been investing money in, in infrastructure, using bonds to do it from the people who had stocked up the money, um, uh, that wasn't done. And uh, now, unfortunately, with interest rates higher, it's going to be more difficult for governments to do that. And one of the other ironies of the midterm election results this week will be that with a divided Congress, where Congress is from a different party to what, who's in the presidency, that's when your government... Um, starts to shrink in america yeah and and you see and, and also we're going to have those horrible and annoying and boring 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 <laughs> um one minute to midnight oh, yeah, budget yeah. you know the, the american you know the american government's going to collapse until we yeah, yeah it's just yeah. infuriating yeah hey we better leave All it right. there peter thank you very much for being with us from the kaka in wellington i'm um bernard hickey uh you've been with peter bell and bernard hickey on Vahoon, uh, uh, Kakite Ano, have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you very much. See you.